0: text this morning is from 2 Corinthians chapter 10. As I was preparing this message, thinking about uh, we're we're not that long away from the fall season. Uh, Rally Sunday is uh, four weeks from today. Plans, of course, need to be in place long before that. There's a call to service. There's a call to volunteerism. There's a call to be engaged, to be involved. And as I looked at this text, to realize this text addresses right where we are in the calendar of our church. Time of restarting of ministry. Put things on hold, of course, during the summer when people are on vacation and kids are gone and all those kinds of things. But as we restart in various ways, uh, this text speaks to many of those kinds of things. You know, What does a gospel-centered, God-honoring ministry look like? And so this text this morning, as we've been working our way through um, the book of 2 Corinthians, Paul has been defending himself, you recall that, defending his character, his apostleship, his ministry, his integrity against all kinds of criticisms. And and he's continuing that defense this morning, so we're jumping into the middle of, of his great defense of his apostolic ministry. So starting in verse 12, not that we dare to classify... Or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves. But when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. But we will not boast beyond limits, but will boast only with regard to the area of influence God assigned to us to reach even to you. For we are not overextending ourselves... "...as though we did not reach you. For we were the first to come all the way to you with the gospel of Christ. We do not boast beyond limit in the labors of others, but our hope is that as your faith increases, our area of influence among you may be greatly enlarged, so that we may preach the gospel in lands beyond you, without boasting of work already done in another's area of influence." Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. For it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. So again, I ask the question, what what does gospel-centered, God-honoring ministry look like? I ask that question because there are are relatively few in the Christian church that, that ask that question. Or think about it with any, uh, any seriousness at all. I, I think about in, uh, on the evangelical end of the spectrum. Our church finds itself uh, in, in the spectrum of, of Christendom. We find ourselves uh, clearly on the evangelical end of the spectrum. And, and as I look around at evangelicalism at large, uh, how many people in congregations are enamored with style? They are enamored with personality? Uh, There is personal preference that rises to the top rather than biblical substance and biblical convictions. So even in in evangelicalism, when it it comes to, let's say, looking for a pastor, the attitude is, well, we need somebody with a forceful public personality. Uh, We need somebody who has an uplifting, uh, self-esteem-affirming kind of message, and if he can be entertaining too, all the better. Uh, Someone who can draw a big crowd, Uh, someone who is uh, kind of a popular, uh, if I can use an archaic expression, kind of a hip, self-assured go-getter. That's the kind of person we want. Uh, Someone who's going to see to it that the church grows in numbers and grows in uh, finances, because if that's happening, pastor must be doing something right. Uh, I mean, success, as the world defines it, equals God-ordained ministry, doesn't it? Well, with those sorts of attitudes in place, uh, it's no wonder in our day, in, in evangelical circles, a great deal of emphasis among, and I think particularly of pastors, I got to be edgier than the next guy. You know, that, that's, sort of, uh, that, that's sort of what is uh, forefront for many people. I have to be cool. I have to be relevant. Maybe get another tattoo or whatever it is. Uh, Strive to show in in as many ways as you can how unconventional you really are. You know, my grandparents, that fuddy-duddy form of Christianity, now we're the new cutting-edge, unconventional, edgier kind of Christianity. That marks, sadly, evangelicalism in many ways. You know, it's it's a hollow, tiresome charade when you get down to it. Well, on the mainline end of uh, the, the spectrum... Uh, The same attitudes are prevalent, I don't have time to delve into that this morning, but they just manifest themselves in different ways. Uh, But but I want to cite a a book published back in 1989 uh, by two authors who come out of United Methodism. And the authors uh, Stanley Hauerwass and William Williman, they published a a very insightful book uh, back in 1989 entitled Resident Aliens, Life in the Christian Colony. That was the title. Um, And and what they say in the book is rather than us as Christians living as resident aliens in this world, as we're called to do, to, to live as though we are in a foreign land, which indeed we are, the American church, they say, reflects the world at large and the world's values rather than transforming the world around And here's what they write, the church in America today is the dull exponent of conventional, secular, political ideas with a vaguely religious tint, whether that's on the conservative end or the liberal end of the spectrum. And they go on to say in the book that the American church has embraced so-called tolerance, has embraced inclusiveness has embraced open-mindedness. The American church, this is their phrase in the book, is an accommodationist church, by and large. And let me read one paragraph of their scathing indictment. They're writing as mainliners, but what they have to say impacts a lot broader than just mainline churches and denominations. Here's what they write. An accommodationist church is so intent on running errands for the world that it actually gives the world less and less in which to disbelieve. Atheism slips into the church where God really does not matter. As we go about building bigger and better congregations, we call it administration, confirming people's self-esteem, worship, Enabling people to adjust to their anxieties brought on by their materialism, pastoral care. And making Christ a worthy subject for poetic reflection. We call that preaching, they said. That's quite uh, an indictment and, sadly, an on-target uh, indictment uh, across, the, the, across the spectrum of American Christianity, whether it be on the evangelical end, whether it be on the more mainline end uh, of things. And so, again, I ask the question, what does gospel-centered, God-honoring ministry look like? And our text in front of us this morning uh, helps us to answer that question, and the answer is in the context of Paul's continuing defense of his character, of his ministry, of his apostleship. And from the words in this text this morning, I want to highlight for you uh, four significant characteristics of what a gospel-centered, God-honoring ministry looks like. Here are the four. Let's tackle them briefly one by one. The first one is this. True Christian ministry, Paul teaches us in this text, is not self-generated, nor is it self-commendatory. You read this passage, this text in front of us. And it seems very evident right from uh, verse 12 that Paul's opponents had been drawing comparisons between themselves and the Apostle Paul. And they came out the better for the comparison, at least in their eyes, in their mind. And and so as Paul begins this text, Paul says, I'm not going to enter into your self-congratulatory game. I'm not going to play that game with you. Um, if you want to try to impress others this is a paraphrase really of what Paul is saying if you want to try to impress others with your background your education your abilities your achievement your super spirituality however you envision that go on ahead and do that in fact notice Paul's sarcasm in verse 12 Paul says you are so awesome you false teachers you intruders in Corinth, you are so awesome that I don't even dare compare or classify myself with you. I mean, you are such spiritual giants. This is Paul's sarcasm. And I'm just a, you know, I'm just a spiritual, pathetic dwarf. And so you shine brightly in, in, in the firmament of religion. You shine brightly and brilliantly, and I cannot rank with such awesome luminaries as you are. I'm not bold enough to join in your self-comparison exercise. I hope you sense Paul's sarcasm in this opening verse. But but, but sarcasm aside from the Apostle Paul, uh, the the passage here teaches us that in Christian ministry, in the Christian realm, when when it comes to commendation, there are only two kinds of, of commendation. There is notice in verse 18, Paul touches on this at the very end of our text, he says, uh, there is a commendation which is from the Lord, verse 18, and he says there is self-commendation. One is valid, the other is not. And you notice, go back to verse 12, notice how Paul describes those who commend themselves. Uh, my English Standard Version uh, translates it this way, those kind of people are without understanding. Understanding end of verse 12 the new english bible puts it this way what fools they are and i like the new living translation how ignorant exclamation point in the translation so paul says when you commend yourself when you compare yourself with others and you come out okay you are fools you're ignorant you're without understanding why because when you measure yourself by yourself guess what you're always a complete success it's the way it works So think about it, you write your own testimonial, and then you congratulate yourself that you live up to it, is what Paul is getting at in in this text. I mean, you score 100% on the scale you yourself have crafted. And, And so the bottom line is, if you measure yourself by yourself, or by others, you end up really having no standard at all, Paul says. And so he says to the Corinthians who are enamored by these newcomers who are bringing a false gospel, who are teaching something different than the gospel entrusted to the apostles, Paul says to them, Wake up, realize that that is what marks these newcomers to Corinth. Their commendation doesn't come from heaven, their commendation comes from themselves. They pat themselves on the back just how great they are. And they have no external standards, they set their own standards by which they evaluate their own life and ministry. There's nothing external by which they evaluate themselves. And so Paul says, be warned. Reject them. Be on the watch for them. Set aside and reject their teaching. Now, Paul says in verse 13, so they measure themselves by themselves, verse 12. Paul says, in contrast, we as true apostles of Jesus Christ, we also have a measurement. We also have a standard. We also have a rule, we also have a calling, if you will, that God has given to us, and we operate under that rule, not one that we have established, but what God has given. And we seek to fulfill our God-given calling with genuineness, with integrity, with humility, because we understand that self-commendation is worthless, all that matters is God's commendation in the end. Uh, the words of Jesus at the end, well done, good and faithful servant. Paul, in essence, says, that's all I want to hear at the end is for the Savior to speak his word of commendation. And so Paul says, when somebody says, "Oh, I'm a servant of the Lord, or somebody says, well, I've been sent here by God, you Corinthians need to evaluate that based on some objective standards, not according to the standards of surrounding culture, because that's what they were doing, Uh, The fashions and fads of the moment, they were evaluating them based on that. Paul didn't measure up, the newcomers did. Or just take a person's empty claims at face value, you can't do that. And so Paul is making the point there are two ways to measure ministry. Uh, And and he's comparing in verse 12, self-measurement and God's measurement. Now, verse 13 um, is a verse which most English translations don't translate uh, literally at all. Uh, And the reason for it is because it's very difficult Greek. And it comes across rather awkwardly in English. And so most versions try to give the sense of verse 13. Uh, and my English Standard Version actually does it very well. But there are a couple of the older versions which translate it literally. And so you, you see the connection between verse 12 and verse 13. Uh, the King James Version does it, and the New American Standard Version does it. So here it is, because I want you to see the word measurement is in verse 12, and it shows up three times in verse 13, although in most of our translations it doesn't show up at all. But, but Paul wants us to see there are two ways of measuring things. So, so you notice in verse 12, for we dare not make ourselves of the number, this is the King James Version, or, or compare ourselves with some that commend themselves, but they measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves are not wise. All right, so there's the self-measurement. Then verse 13, this is a rather literal translation, but we will not boast of things without our measure but according to the measure of the rule, which God has assigned to us, a measure to reach even unto you. So that the, the, the English makes it a little, it's like, what is Paul saying in verse 13? Hence, most versions paraphrase the verse. But, but here's the point. I want you to see there are two ways to measure. Verse 12 is one way. Verse 13 is another way. And the point is in verse 12, there is a yardstick, there is a measuring tape, that the false apostles, the false teachers, have created and they make use of. And then Paul says in verse 13, there's a measuring tape, a yardstick that God has created and that we use, says the apostle. And of course, the only appropriate yardstick, the only appropriate measurement, is the one God has created. He's the one who stretches out the tape and does the measuring. And so Paul says, if you want to evaluate my ministry, use the measuring tape that God has set for me. Use the rule, the measure, the standard that God has set. Well, what in the world is Paul referring to? He's referring to the area of mission and ministry that God had assigned to him. And that assignment, the parameters of his calling... The measurement of whether he would be a success or not were set by God at his conversion. Uh, If you remember, Paul was converted on the road to Damascus. And in Acts chapter 9, in that conversion uh, passage, the Lord says this of Paul, of Saul of Tarsus, who had just been converted. The Lord says, he is a chosen instrument of mine, and here's the phrase, to bear my name before the Gentiles. That's why God saved him, so that he would be a witness, a missionary, a church planter among the Gentiles. That's the measure, that's the rule, that's the standard God established. Uh, Paul echoes the same thing in Galatians chapter 1 and verse 16. He speaks about how God called him to salvation before he was born. It's the way it works, doesn't it? God called him to salvation, and and Paul says, then in time he revealed his son to me in order that, this is Galatians 1.16, in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. So that was his mission, that was his ministry, that was the sphere the Lord assigned to him, and so his work would be measured by the rule that was going to be used to measure his work was was he carrying out that initial commission or, uh, or was he not? Well, after several years of ministry, Paul made a trip to Jerusalem. He tells us about this in the book of Galatians. Um, And he went to Jerusalem because he'd never met the apostles in person. Uh, He'd never met the church leadership. He'd never met the elders there in the original church. And so Paul made a trip, a special trip to Jerusalem. And he tells us why in Galatians 2 and verse 2 in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain, is what I'm doing in line with the measure, the rule, God established. And so he goes to Jerusalem, and he has wonderful conversations with the leaders there in Jerusalem where they discussed mission, they discussed ministry together, and the upshot of the meeting was the apostles came to a warm-hearted agreement on how further mission work should best be carried out. And so the way, what they decided was that Peter and uh, those who were going to work with him would focus their mission efforts on fellow Jews. Peter spoke to Gentiles too. We know that from the book of Acts, for example. But Peter's basic calling was to take the gospel, win Jews to Christ. And the agreement was that Paul and those that worked with him Paul, Barnabas, Silas, Timothy, Titus, Luke, the different ones that worked with him, they would take the gospel to Gentiles. Now, Paul preached to Jews. You find that in the book of Acts. But but his overall focus, the, the, the measure he was given, the standard he was given, is you are to take the gospel to Gentiles who have never heard. And so the meeting ends on a beautiful note of brotherly fellowship and mutual encouragement and prayer. And so the rule was established. The measurement was put in place. The standards were agreed to among all the apostolic leadership. And so Paul's ready to leave with Barnabas on his missionary trip. And uh, before he leaves, uh, several of the apostles, Peter, James, and John, requested of Paul that when you go to the Gentiles, as we are so thankful you're willing to do, as you go to the Gentiles, we ask that the one thing you remember is the poor. Uh, Because in Jerusalem, in Judea, the believers there were in dire economic straits. And so Paul says, as they made that request, Galatians 2.10, it was the very thing I was eager to do. Hence, we've seen in 2 Corinthians, why is Paul so eager about collecting an offering among the Gentile churches? Because that was part of the measure, that was part of the agreement, that as he went out, he would help to raise funds for the poor believers in that original congregation and the surrounding areas and collect funds to help them out. And so Paul, very zealous in doing that. And so Paul says to the Corinthians, I've been carrying out God's call, and I've reached, now he says in verse 13, I've reached even to you, I've come that far west from the Holy Land." Paul says. Uh, In fact, verse 14, he says, we were the first to come all the way to Corinth with the gospel of Christ. We were the ones who brought the word of Jesus first, we got off the boat, we started doing home mission work, we planted a church. So that when you Corinthians evaluate mission and ministry, who are the ones who come with God's authority and who are the ones who come with their own authority? You need to answer that question. Who are the ones who invent their own standards of ministry and who are the ones who come with God-given standards of ministry? You need to look at that, Paul says. God called me to evangelize Gentiles, and that is exactly what I have done. Now, the intruders have come, and they want to dismantle everything that I have built. And we we discover from the book of 2 Corinthians, seemingly these intruders were what they would call themselves Jewish Christians. Uh, but, but their view was to be a true Christian you had to follow the law of Moses. You can't eat pork, you can't eat shrimp, you know you got to follow all the dietary laws, all of those things. You can't be a real Christian unless you do that. And Paul says they're preaching another gospel. It's by grace through faith alone. That, that's the apostolic message. They're preaching another gospel, they're setting forth another Jesus. They're bringing another Holy Spirit, if you will, and Paul says, you can't have anything to do with it, and plus, they're coming with false teaching, and they're intruding on the Gentile territory that God assigned to me. They certainly were not sent here by God. And so true Christian ministry uh, is not self-generated, and it is not self-commendatory, For those of you who have served over the years in various Christian ministries, you know why you were there. It's not, you know, I think I would be the qualified one. I'm really pretty good. You know, I'm glad they picked me. I'm glad they made the phone call for me to be a volunteer, because I'm really something. Okay, I, I, I know that when you were called to ministry, many of you said, I don't know if I can do that. But if God has called me, I will do it to the glory of his name. True Christian ministry is never self-generated, and it's not self-commendatory. Notice the second one. True Christian ministry enters the doors that God has opened. And you notice in this paragraph, in verse 13, in my version, um, the, the word assigned is here. The area of influence God assigned to us, Paul says. And then verse 14, Paul says, in coming to you, we didn't overextend ourselves. We didn't go beyond the assignment. Well, you went too far west. That wasn't what your your assignment was. No, in coming to you, we were not overextending ourselves. And verse 15, notice what it says. We continue to labor in Corinth with the goal that our impact among you might be increased. So here's the question I have for you as you contemplate this fall season. What door for ministry is God opening for you in the next handful of weeks? Is it being a greeter? Taking a few Sundays out of the year, welcoming people? Has God gifted you to do that? Has he opened the door? What about the sound system? Is God opening that door for you? Is he calling you in in that direction? As our Wana Club gets underway and phone calls are made, when a call is made, are you willing to say, Lord, here am I, send me? What doors of ministry has God opened for you, is opening for you? You know he's opened the door, it's just a question of whether you'll go through it. And so what doors of ministry has he opened for us here as a congregation here at Grace? We as a congregation can't do everything. There's a lot of good ministry and mission that can go on. We can't do everything, but what has God called us to do? Uh, What specifically are we called to focus on? There's a beautiful verse in uh, Revelation 3 and verse 8, where uh, in Revelation 2 and 3, Jesus is addressing... Uh, seven first century churches all in what is modern turkey and to one of the churches one of the ancient churches in uh, the the greek city of philadelphia uh, it's a small congregation we discover from the letter and uh, i suppose a congregation about our size and the lord says to this congregation i know you're smaller among all the churches you're not you're not a huge mega church You're a smaller congregation, but be encouraged. Here's what Revelation 3.8 says, Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. God opens doors, and true Christian ministry is us as a congregation, us as individuals entering those doors. Number three, true Christian ministry always has a heart to reach the lost with the gospel. You notice in verse 16 in our text, Paul hopes to keep pressing westward from Corinth. Notice verse 15, this is very interesting. Paul says, I, I'm coming, I'm making another visit to Corinth. He has told them that already in the letter. Uh, but he says, my hope is that as your faith increases, our area of influence among you may be greatly enlarged so that, notice verse 16, notice the so that we may preach the gospel in lands beyond you. We want to keep pushing further westward into Europe, Paul says. And how far did he want to go? Well, you read the book of Romans and uh, chapter 15. Paul says to the Romans, I hope to make it to the Atlantic Ocean. I'm heading for Spain to bring the gospel all the way from Asia, from the Middle East, all the way to the end of the Roman Empire, to to the province of Spain. And Paul says, I hope you Corinthians have an evangelistic heart. As you fellowship together in Corinth and as you carry on ministry and you have worship services and all those wonderful fellowship things that you have together, I hope you'll join me in this evangelistic endeavor. I hope you will perhaps have some supplies you could send along. Maybe there are some finances, some regular support you could give. Uh, maybe there are several members of the congregation who could go with me. Who knows? Uh, But Paul says, I'm here to be among you so that the influence might be increased, so that I can press further westward with your prayers, with your support, with your help. And so here's the question for, for us here, part of this congregation Is evangelism and outreach your heart? Is evangelism and outreach at the heart of this congregation? What makes me so thankful to be here is that evangelism and outreach were at the heart of this congregation decades before I ever showed up. This church was built on outreach and evangelism. And so the approach today may be different than it was 40 years ago, 50 years ago, be that as it may, but the heart and the passion And the desire needs to burn as brightly as it ever did. And so you think about congregational ministry. We minister within the congregation. We gather on Sunday mornings to sing God's praises, to give a public witness to our faith. Uh, There are Bible classes, Sunday school, so that we can get built up. As believers, grounded in the word, there are opportunities for visiting and fellowship of all kinds, whether it's seniors with XYZ or all the way across the board. There are many wonderful things that God has done, and those things are essential for a healthy congregation, but without a heart to bring the gospel, to use Paul's phrase here, to the lands beyond, everything will eventually wither and die if there isn't an evangelistic outreach heart true christian ministry well, whatever aspects of it we think about must have at the at the heart of it all that great commission um, passion go and make disciples as jesus said matthew 28 i was just thinking about that just for myself uh, in context of, of all the wonderful ministry that god has raised up here And I think about some of the elements I've had a privilege to be part of now for, well, almost 14 years. I think of our mission in Kenya, of all places, 9,000 miles one way. And as I was thinking about it, probably about 12 of us here in the congregation have been there. It's been an amazing number. So we've gone 9,000 miles to Kenya. To use the phrase in our text, is that pressing beyond our limits? Or was that a door God providentially opened for us to make a difference? And having been there on a number of occasions, God providentially opened the door. I think of our uh, Awana Club. I'm looking forward to the year. It'll be uh, year 13 for me, being uh, an Awana volunteer on on Wednesday nights. Um, We had 110 kids this year. Uh, A huge percentage of them, when they registered, said no church home, none. No spiritual contact, no spiritual influence. Some that put down a church home, many of them never even go, but they put down a church anyway. And so you think about Wednesday night, our Wednesday night club, it's not just a way to provide something worthwhile for kids on Wednesday night. It is worthwhile, by the way. But it needs to be an outreach, and it is, overwhelmingly so. So on Wednesday night, we minister to our own kids. We were talking with Mark about this uh, yesterday, you know, when, when you have like a youth group. You've got kids who know the Lord, some who don't know the Lord. Okay, so you want to minister to the kids who know the Lord. You want them to grow like you use the phrase, grow deeper. But what about the kids who don't know Christ? So, so in whatever we do, there needs to be that evangelistic heart do you know the Lord? Are you saved? Boy, you don't hear that phrase much anymore. Do you know Christ is your Savior? And, and so true Christian ministry has a heart to reach the lost with the gospel. And that leads me then to the final point, and this is a good way to conclude. True Christian ministry gives glory to God for all that is accomplished. Paul's opponents boasted greatly in themselves, their gifts, their spiritual experiences, whatever it was, but all of it is self-centered, self-focused, boasted every which way. Now, you notice in the text, Paul boasted also greatly, but you notice it was in what God had done, not in who he was, not in his education, not in anything else. And you notice Paul paraphrases Jeremiah in verse 17. In my version, it's in quotation marks because Paul takes this right out of Jeremiah chapter 9. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let me read you the two verses of Jeremiah where Paul draws this from. Jeremiah 9, verses 23 and 24. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth, for in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Jeremiah says, I boast a lot, but I boast in Jehovah, the great I Am, The covenant-keeping God, I boast in what he has done. I boast in his character, a God of steadfast love, justice, righteousness. He practices those things, if you can put it that way for God. God is marked by those things. I take great joy in that. I proclaim that truth everywhere I can. What a mighty God we serve. I boast in that. And Paul takes that expression out of Jeremiah and says, like Jeremiah, I boast a lot also. But I boast in Jesus Christ, my Savior and Lord. He's the one who rescued me. He's the one who saved me. He's the one who called me. He's the one who gifted me. All that stuff, even before I was born, he called me, had a plan for my life. Paul says, I boast in all of that. How does the hymn writer put it? Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast. Save in the death of Christ my God. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. If Paul lived in our day, he would uh, certainly undoubtedly join us in singing enthusiastically to God be the glory, great things he has done. And so we're entering ministry season, full bore. We're asking for God's direction, for his provision. If you are a, a true believer, if you're a heart Christian, God has called you to ministry So what does that look like for you? It doesn't look the same for each person. We're different personalities and gifts and all of that. But God is calling you to be engaged this year. What does that look like? And so the bottom line of it all is in all that we do individually and as a Christian, may the glory of God be that which motivates us, stirs us, gives us joy because life isn't about us. It is about knowing God, glorifying Him, and enjoying Him forever. And when we understand that, and when we lay hold of that, there is a tremendous joy and purpose in life that God gives us through His Holy Spirit and through His Word. The glory of God in all that we do, even as Paul says, whether you eat or drink, even those ordinary things, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That is the end of all things. Let us pray together. So, Lord, uh, this passage is historical because Paul's telling his story, but yet it has a tremendous application for each one of us. There are lessons for us in here. There is direction for us in the days ahead. There is encouragement for us. Uh, The prompting of your Spirit is in and under this text. So, Lord, however you're calling us in these next weeks, Whatever avenues of ministry, whether it seems to us big or small, in your eyes it's all significant. We are the body of Christ, and each member is essential to the functioning of the body in a healthy way. And so may each one of us, in a prayerful way, find our place, our calling. The the measure, the rule that you've assigned to us. And then, Lord, as we carry out ministry, not to say, you know, I'm doing better than the other person, comparing ourselves with others or with ourselves, but to say, Lord, you are the one, continue to cleanse my heart, cause me to walk in your ways, cause me to trust and obey, just to follow you. And so in the end, to hear, out of grace, that well done, good and faithful servant. We pray these things for Jesus' sake, amen.